Welcome to another program of Fiona Inc. I'm Dr. Fiona Pishka, and I'm here to teach you another lesson on leadership today. We have been doing a series on leadership, and of course, we have several lessons before this one, so in case you have not seen any of those, feel free to go back and check them out so that you can have some perspective about what we're talking about today. So today, I wanna cover the subject of leadership intimidation. And what I mean by that is how you should behave or handle yourself in a role of leadership and not be intimidated. And also how you can handle being in a position where you might feel like someone is using their position to intimidate you. So it'll be a two-way approach. Then I'm also going to be answering a question that I received uh, from the last two teachings that I did, the ones I did on uh, fear, having no fear in leadership and how to make decisions in leadership. So that is what we have uh, scheduled to talk to you today about. And uh, let's get right into it. So one of the things that happens in leadership is people don't make decisions that they have to make in a leadership position because they are intimidated by someone, something, a problem, a situation. And so it causes them to just freeze or to revert back to something that they're more comfortable with. But one of the things that you have to understand about intimidation is you have to find the source of the intimidation. Where is it coming from? And what is the qualification of the person that's intimidating you or the, the problem that's causing the intimidation? For example, if I uh, were to somehow end up in a um, space shuttle operations room, let's say that, okay? And all of a sudden, I'm watching the monitors, I'm watching the people working there, I'm watching this whole operation, and they are getting ready to launch something into space. And now, I've never been there before. I've never seen this operation before. I have no idea what the computer screens mean and what they do. But let's say that I, I'm observing the room and I see that there is a person there that's speaking to every person sitting at every desk and giving them instructions which they follow and then next thing I see is there's takeoff. Now, if I have never studied this subject, if I've, I don't even know what they're doing, and I'm already an intimidated person, meaning I'm afraid of what I don't know how to do, if I'm in that room and all of a sudden the person that's leading this scenario comes to me and says, I really need you to take over for a few minutes while I leave the room so that I, I, there's an emergency, I have to go, and none of these people can get up from their places. I need them all to stay there, so I need you to help launch this thing. Okay, <laughs> if you are a person that's intimidated just by crossing the street, um, you're gonna probably drop you're probably gonna run away. You're probably gonna think, how absurd. Like, what? This, is, this guy doesn't even know who I am. And those are the thoughts that might come through your head. Now, if you are a confident leader though, if you're a seasoned leader, like you've led things before, and you feel like, well, 
I'm a, I, I've led things before, then if somebody comes and requests that of you, you may be like, okay, um, give me the basics. Like, what are you doing? You know, give me the basics. Just give me some basics. What are, what are your ideas? Whatever. And you'll take information from them and you will proceed, but you will heavily rely on the people sitting there. Now you're looking at me going, are you kidding me? There's no way on this planet I would ever do that. The truth of the matter is I probably would. I would probably, if I walked into a scenario like that, I would probably do it. Because to me, it's simply a process. And you just have to see, okay, what is your process? Tell me what your process is, and then I'll help to lead. Because it's not that you have to be the super smart person in that moment to know every detail about what every person is doing. It's just somebody needs to direct the order in which things are occurring, okay? So if you break it down like that, you're not afraid. I'll tell you a story about my life. My husband and I were living in Tennessee. We had just gotten married, so we probably were married a year maybe, maybe less. And my husband was going to be the usher at a wedding for a young man in the church that we attended. So as a last-minute thought, after the, his rehearsal, because he was an usher, um, it wouldn't have taken that long. Then we were planning we'd probably go to dinner or something. So anyway, as a last-minute thing, I decided to go with him to this rehearsal and just wait out, you know, wait in the back of the thing. And so I ended up sitting with him in the sanctuary and the pastor, who was our pastor, um, got up to start the rehearsal. And when he got up to start the rehearsal, he said, so welcome everyone, all the family and everyone to this uh, rehearsal dinner of such and such. And at this time, I'm going to turn things over to Fiona Pishka, who is going to coordinate our rehearsal. She is the coordinator of the wedding. Well, that's the first I ever heard of that. I never, ever, ever, ever heard that I was the coordinator of the wedding. I did not know anything about what the bride or groom wanted. Never spoke to them about it. Never, nobody ever talked to me about it. And I thought, so I got up, <laughs> I thought, this is the day of this girl's wedding. I'm not going to stand there and go, I'm sorry, but nobody told me anything. I thought, well, I'll coordinate. <laughs> so I stood up. I said, thank you very much, Pastor. I took the microphone. I got to the front. I have no idea who any of these people are. I just know the bride and groom and their parents, maybe one set of parents. And I said, well... In order for us all to be acquainted with each other, why don't we start by a small introduction of who is in the wedding and what your roles are? And I literally conducted that entire rehearsal of the wedding, did the wedding the next day, and nobody ever knew that I was never asked. Because I certainly was not going to mess up the bride and groom's day by letting her know that whoever she assigned to ask me to do this never said anything to me. And again, I had led things before. I, I imagine I, because I had just gotten married, they probably figured I knew what to do at the wedding, so they let me court. I don't know why they thought I qualified for this because I didn't have a business in the field or anything. I just simply led things. And it wasn't even that I led anything at the church we attended at the time because we were new there. I just, you know, but they, they picked me as their coordinator. 
So I led. I led a great ceremony, had running back and forth for everybody. I mean, it was a lot of work. <laughs> I did it because it helped somebody in that moment. And they, to this day, if they heard this story, they would have no idea that I'm talking about them because I never told them. And that sometimes, see, your gift will make room for you and your gift is necessary on this earth. So being intimidated to do something that you have a gift to do is, is, is like a crushing of your own gift and a, and a refusal to use it for God's kingdom or his assignments or what he's asking you to do now. There is this element of protocol within our gifts. So I also know situations where someone, because they're a natural born leader, because they've led things before, because they have a bold personality, because they can speak louder than everyone else in the room, they want to tell everybody what to do in every situation at all times, no matter what it is or whose job it is. That would be not protocol. Okay, so when you are operating as a leader, the devil has two ways to derail you, especially for those of you who have a natural leadership bent. And maybe even further, especially for the women in leadership. Okay, so one way for the enemy to derail your leadership gift is to cause you to be intimidated by circumstances, the environment in which you're leading, or the people that you have to lead. And he will present it like they don't like you, they don't want you, they don't respect you, so whatever God asks you to do, you really, it's just a joke, okay? Now, Jesus, when he came on the scene in ministry, he had those types of people. He had the type of people to the point where his gift, the, the, uh, not just his gift, the anointing in him, the anointing of God. This is God's anointing, God's power to perform miracles, signs, and wonders. With Jesus had had a history, a record that was seen by people. Jesus could not do any of those things in his hometown, okay? It wasn't because Jesus was powerless. It wasn't because Jesus wasn't good enough. It wasn't because he was doing it wrong in that time. It was simply because the people would not receive from him where he was. So what did Jesus do? Jesus left and he went to the next assignment. And he said why he, nothing happened. He said what happened. And it's an example for us. What Jesus did not do, this is key. Jesus did not stay there to convince them that what he does is real and that it could work. He didn't. He went to the next town. He went to the next villages where they could accept what he already was equipped to do. So if Jesus had stayed in his hometown 
to try to convince everybody what a great ministry he had, how results were coming left and right, how the dead were being raised, how people were, that were in wheelchairs or sitting on the side of the road were just getting up at a command. He would have taken up all of his time trying to convince a bunch of people that did not respect him as a person. And he would have been wasting his gift and his calling in a place that he couldn't let go of. In other words, Jesus would have been intimidated by their unbelief to try to convince them that he wasn't who they thought he was. If you look at Jesus's entire ministry, he never stuck around to convince anybody of who he is because he was confident about who he was and what his mission was. So one of the traps of intimidation for leaders is to prove yourself to people who don't think that you're worthy, that you're good enough, or that you can even do the job. That right there is a derailment of your purpose. It's a derailment and a misuse. And frankly, it is a um, diminishing of your gift. It's devaluing the gift of leadership in you and all of the anointing that God's put in your life to be in that position. As a, It doesn't matter. It, we're talking about leadership, but it could be about anything that you were gifted to do. It could be a person that's an artist. It could be somebody that's a musician, a singer, anything like that. It could be somebody that uh, is a... Is a um, that is a mechanic, it could be somebody that is an engineer, any type of gifting that you have and you tr you're trying to convince people that you, that you have results in this field and they don't believe you. Jesus left. He walked away from that group. Now, if anybody in that town wanted something from Jesus, they had to go find where he was doing it in another place that had belief. This is so key. So don't be intimidated. Don't get derailed by intimidation of trying to prove yourself. If God asked you to do something, that's proof. Right there, it's proof. You have to know how to maneuver and manage your gift where it keeps its value and respect. The next thing of intimidation uh, that derails your gift is simply where you are afraid to do something because you don't think you're good enough. So one side is people don't think you're good enough, so you're trying to convince them. But the other side is you won't even attempt to do what it is that you could do because you feel already you're not good enough. So it's different. If Jesus had gone to his hometown and he didn't try to do any miracles, he didn't try to pray for anybody, he didn't try to approach someone that was sick and ask them if they want to be healed, right? That would be him being intimidated about what he could do and what God could do through him. So that, that would be a form of intimidation too. And that's what a lot of people are used to. They're, they're, they don't even want to try. They're like, well, I'm not good enough. Or, you know, what would people think about me and all this? So all those scenarios, whether people already outright tell you what they think about you when you have done what you know how to do versus you don't even do it at all because you are afraid of what people will say. Both the, that's both sides of the intimidation coin of leadership, which is something you should never participate in. You have to think of your life as you are given the same hours in a day as the person that ridicules you. You're given the same hours in the day 
as the owner of the business that doesn't want to hire you. You're given the same hours in the day as the person that's a multi-billionaire. You're given the same hours in the day as the person who has children, as the person who has no children, as the person that's single, as the person that is married. You, everybody has the same hours in the day. And, and many decisions that we make, I would say all the decisions that we make, determines the value we place in those hours of the day. So when God asks you to do something and you are making excuses about it, you are literally saying to God, I don't have any time to fit this into my life, or I don't have the skill to fit this into my life, or I don't have the audience that will allow me to fit this into my life. I've just simply answered all those questions for you in this series because you are in charge of that 24 hours and who you give permission to. So we saw in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth when, and, and then the difference between Mary, both people were approached, but they had to make a decision. And both people did something different with their decision-making. Now, in the case of Mary, she on the spot made a decision. How could she do that? And what is the difference between David's decision when he asked the king or he went before the king to get permission, basically to get permission to, to go ahead and fight Goliath. So here's the difference. This is a question that was asked, so I'm helping to answer that. When you have to make a decision, you always have to consider protocol. What is the protocol? Not, of the, not the protocol of the traditions of men, but the protocol of the order of leadership, okay? So in the, in the case of David, who is coming to fight an enemy of an entire army, okay? He was representing the army to fight Goliath. Goliath wasn't coming after David personally. So it wasn't like David showed up on the scene and then this guy, Goliath, saw him and went, hey, you, David, how dare you come and bring food for them? I will come and kill thee and all this stuff. No, 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 no. David showed up and heard what Goliath was saying to an army, okay? So the problem was a problem that the army had and that the army's position was supposed to solve. Now, David was not part of the army, okay? So it would have been out of order for David to find out what does the guy get that defeats this Goliath, right? If he found that out, then he said, hey, guys, I got this. And he just took off and went after Goliath. That would be pride, okay? Because then he would say, hey, I can't believe you little wimps. This guy, he's, you know, all this stuff. No. So David now had to participate as someone not just representing himself, but he was representing God. Because if you look at the language of David in 1 Samuel, um, let's go there for a minute. In 1 Samuel 17, if you look at the language of David, okay, um, you would see, I'm trying to find a spot here, that David was asking um, who is this man that defies the army of God, right? 
And I'm not sure where it is. I don't want to find it right now. But if you, um, if you look at 1 Samuel 17, and let's see here, I'm around verse 24. And okay, so it's before that. So David got up early, so da, da, da. verse 21, Israel and the Philistines, 22, April, uh, 23, as he was talking with them, behold, a champion, the Philistine of Gath came, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words again, and David heard him. When the men of Israel all saw the man, they fled from him and were very frightened. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. The king will reward the man. So see, they're talking that this man is coming to defy a country, to defy a whole group of people, okay? And um, then they say what will happen. And then verse 26, then David spoke to the men who were standing by him and said, what will be done for the man? And um, uh, I still can't find the spot. But there is a part where David talks about um, that he's defying the army of God, that he is basically defying, it's like a country. So I think it's in 26. Let's take a look on that. And um, we're going to find it. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him. What will be done? Okay. Uh, for the Philistine, for this, uh, this grace of his taunting to be removed from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he has taunted and defied the armies of the living God? So do you see uh, David's perspective here was not this man is coming against me. His perspective was this man is coming against the army of God. So if he wanted to participate in being the solution to this, he needed to go through the protocol of how he could now come and, and be the champion fighter from the army of God to this Philistine. Okay, so that's why his decision, it's not that Saul made the decision for David. It was that David made a decision that he could solve this problem, but he went through the protocol to get the permission in order for him to be able to, to solve, to, to fight this giant. And in order to do that, he did not just show up and said, well, you're going to let me do it because I'm the only guy that could fight him, okay? That would just be simply pride again, okay? But instead, he, he did two things. When he got in front of the king, who was the decision maker to give him the opportunity to fight the giant, he did not rehash to Saul what his brother said about him, how his brother didn't think that he was a good enough shepherd and that he left a little, you know, some old person, some terrible person with his sheep. And that when he was little, they had a dinner and they didn't call him to dinner, but God saw that he was fit. And so God called him to dinner. And by that result, you should qualify me to go up against this giant because my brother couldn't do it. No, no, no. What David did instead was he gave the king the proper resume that was necessary to convince the king that he knows how to fight 
big things. Okay? So David said to Saul, I have killed these wild animals that will come up against the sheep. I would kill them with my bare hands. And he, he went into details how he killed them. He said, I would hit them first. That didn't work. Then I would come at them with my bare hands. And so Saul then saw him as qualified, at least better than anybody else that presented themselves. And Saul gave him the opportunity. So in this case of decision-making, David made the decision to be the one to come up against this man simply because of his defiance of God and against God's army. But he had to be able to come through the army in order to do the fight. That made it legitimate. That made it a legitimate fight. This army was fighting against that army. Because Goliath's own words was, give me a man that could fight me. Well, the man showed up in the form of a teenage boy, and he went through the proper protocol to get the job done. Now, in the case of Mary, she made a decision on the spot to, to carry the child, Jesus. The difference was, as far as protocol goes, she was saying yes to her will. She was using her will to say yes to an assignment from God. So when God asks us to do something, he's asking us to do it. And it requires our will to say yes or no. Now, this is a touchy situation. Many people have been taught and think that if they can say that I would like to do this, but my child, my spouse, my boss, you know, the government, I don't know, the pastor, my company, and all these different people won't let me do it. They think that that gives them the reason why they can't. It's just they can't do it. They really would like to, but they just can't. Now, God would not ask you to do something that is impossible for you to do if he knows you didn't have the permission to say yes. God doesn't waste his time. He wouldn't ask you a question to answer that you need to answer him if you have no permission to say yes. So God didn't wake up David from the, the pasture where he was tending his flock to ask him if he would go fight Goliath for him. He didn't do that. But David would have said yes anyway. But then David would have still gone through the protocol of the proper way of doing it. Now for Mary, there was no protocol to go through. It was her making a decision that would change her own life. It is her free will that she was using to, to choose God's way. Okay, and that and same thing with Joseph, her fiance, he was making a decision for himself, thinking that Mary did something wrong. So but so he will have mercy on her and do it quietly. But remember, the angel went and uh, he had a dream. And the dream gave him an instruction of what he should do. And he used his own will again. And he followed the instruction and said, yes, I will do what you asked me to do. He did not have a meeting with the family. He did not go consult 50 friends and his father and all elders of the community to see if 
they think this is true. He answered God for himself. So when you're making a decision, the first step is to see that something is wrong and you can make a difference and you say yes. But the second level is if there is protocol to follow, you follow protocol. You don't just go insert yourself. This happens a lot. So if somebody is having a hard time where they're constantly being rejected as a leader or constantly being rejected as being accepted, okay, and they may think that if they go into certain places, right, that those places will be able to accept them better, right? And so they go to those places and they try to assert themselves in some type of leadership position, some type of counseling position, some type of like authority figure in something, but they were never appointed in that position. They never went through the protocol to be able to do that, to have the credibility in that, uh, in that church, in that office, in that building to do this, and they get rejected. And then they feel like the world is against them. That's another trap of the enemy to cause you to dilute your gift, to devalue it by using it wrongfully. Jesus never used his gift or operated in the anointing of God where faith was not present. The exchange for what Jesus did was the people's faith. They had to offer their faith and he offered what their faith was able to get them. That's what he said. He said, according to your faith, so be it unto you. When he was in his own hometown, he couldn't do many miracles there because the people had no faith in what he was saying and what he could do. For your own life, if you're in a place where people have no faith in you as a person, like they don't, they don't uh, respect your authority, they don't respect your gift, they don't think it's good enough or it's valid, you have to ask yourself a few questions. First of all, have you devalued your gift and presented it to them in a way that's so devaluing that they can't accept it? They think you're a joke. Or is, it, is that how they treat everyone with that gift or a majority of the people with that gift? Well, in that case, then it's not a place that you want to keep offering your gift. If we follow the example of Jesus, he left. So if there were people in that environment that needed your gift, they'll know where to find you if you have to leave. Okay, now all of these decisions to stay or to leave or to start something or to keep doing something, they must be bathed in prayer. They must have the leading of the Holy Spirit. And these things occur by first securing yourself in the word of God and getting a good standard and a good base before you move on in decisions. One of the traps I see for women in leadership is offense. Women get offended because people reject them, which it happens a lot. Women do get rejected a lot in leadership. They get devalued by people's words. They get told you're not allowed to lead. You're not supposed to speak. You're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to do that. And so as a result, they build up these barriers and these walls. And so when they start leading now, they're leading from a position of defense or pushing their way through. And that in itself will devalue your leadership position. 
being emotional, being outrageous and all this is part of your personality, that wouldn't devalue your leadership as much as you doing it with a motive and with a heart and with the mindset that if I don't do it this strong or if I don't take my turn, if I don't tell them like it is, then my gift will never be used and then they will, it will be against God and they need to know the truth. And see, Jesus never did that. He never, ever did that because he understood the value of what he did. And he understood that if somebody wanted what he had, they had to come get it with faith. And so that's what my challenge to you today is. How have you been presenting your leadership gift? Now, I told you a story about, you know, someone asking if they could speak to my employee to verify some information. And that's when the Lord showed me a lot of women feel the need to be verified. They're constantly being asked to be verified when they say something. Now, what I didn't do is I didn't lash out at the person. I just simply answered their question. I said, no, you don't need to talk to my employee. I've given you enough evidence. You can make decisions with that. And they said, oh, okay. I said, yes. So I didn't go, I can't believe that you want to talk to my employee over me. Now, when I hung up and I relayed the conversation to other people that I know well, that know me well, I said, I found a trap that I think a lot of women go through and they don't even realize what to do. And that's what started my entire journey here to talk about leadership. And maybe men have the same problem too, who may not have as much experience in a field and they're up against more seasoned people in their field, they may feel the same way. So it's not just related to women, but I do know a lot of women feel this way. So here's what happens. Test yourself to see if you feel the need to be verified. Okay, here's some of the scenarios that may happen. Number one, you feel that when your authority is questioned and when your evidence is questioned, you want to present people who could back you up, right? So you want, number one, you need to, you would tell, well, this person thinks I'm good and that person thinks I'm good and this person thinks I'm good, okay? And number two, when you are presenting a case, if you're presenting, doing a presentation, if you're showing your resume, if you're doing something as, a, as far as a presentation to persuade someone that you are capable of doing a job, you add extra things in there that somebody else might not do. You always say, well, you know, we got to do extra. We got to, because, you know, they just don't accept women or they don't just accept this person or they don't just, because I'm not educated enough, so I have to give extra. Well, here's the thing. When we do those things, we're operating from the natural perspective. So we're thinking that when we go into these scenarios, that our natural ability, our natural experience is going to get us the job. It's going to get us the position. When, now that leaves God out of it. What you have to know is if God asks you to do something, he's empowered you to do it. And so just you saying what you have to say should be sufficient. Now, if it's a case where you do need to present evidence because it is a scenario that requires evidence or it's a job interview and you need to show your resume and show where you've worked in a regular standard way, yeah. But if you find yourself adding things to it or having to overemphasize something simply because you feel like you'll be rejected otherwise, then that's you now switching to the flesh to get you 
what God told you is yours, if you understand what I'm saying. So these are the traps of intimidation. That's another form of intimidation to have to overcompensate for where you think you're not good enough. That's an intimidation move that is trying to overcome intimidation. So you now have to identify these places in your life where you may have been doing this. And it's very simple to correct. What you need to do is you need to find out what you've been doing and find out why you're doing it. And if you have wrong teaching, if you have a wrong mindset on the subject, you need to change your mindset. You need to renew your mind with the correct information, with the proper information. If you don't do that, then you're still going to be using old information to solve a new problem. And it's going to keep recycling over and over and over. And the more often you do it, the more it gets embedded in you and becomes part of your nature. And now you're leading instinctively by doing these actions. It can be very tiring to lead this way. So I want to encourage you today that if you've had these scenarios in your life in leadership and you want to make a change, the first level of change is to always look to yourself and see what you have been allowing, what you have been accommodating, what you have been feeling comfortable with, and ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you need to make changes and then start making changes in those places. I hope that this series has been a help to you and a blessing to your life and that it has enabled you to become a better leader or even start leading things that you might have left undone in your life. I look forward to teaching you more subjects on more subject matters. And of course, I wanna hear from you. So make sure that you send us a note, you leave a comment, you send us an email, let us know what your questions are. Let me know what it is, subject matter that you'd like to address. And I'd be happy to do so. God bless you. See you next time. Thank you.